Back in September, Dan started a series in the book of Galatians. A book until just a few years ago, I would glaze over when I would read it because I didn't get it. And so we've taken a couple um, side turns here leading up to this point in time. Dan finished up the end of chapter 4 last week, and so this morning... Um, We'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. And why don't we read that? For freedom Christ has set us free. Get that. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify... Again, to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And Father, we ask that as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and our minds and and challenge us in our thinking, Lord, that maybe what we've been doing all along here isn't exactly what your Word calls us to. Teach us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our society today, we are taught that we must earn what we receive. That's our default mindset. Receiving a gift from someone and then thinking of how we can repay that person is where our mind goes automatically, right? It's really funny how movies um, speak to our everyday lives. Movies depict the same thing. We have to earn what we receive, For example, in the movie Saving Private Ryan, as Captain Miller lay on the bridge, he told Ryan, earn this. Earn the life that you've been given by the life that you live from now on. My daughter really hated this when I pointed this out, but even we even see it in Sound of Music. Maria, happy about the positive turn of events in her life, sings, I must have done something good. As if the positive things in life are somehow earned or connected to our being good. These are moralistic viewpoints that clearly conflict with what Scripture teaches. Now, Jesus said he was sent by the Father to proclaim liberty to the captives. The captives are you and me. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's you and me. He came to set us free. Why? Because we needed to be rescued. Glory be to God that our freedom is not dependent upon our earning it. The fact of the matter is we cannot earn our freedom as believers in Christ. Not only that, but there's nothing we can do to maintain that freedom. We do not maintain God's favor by how we live. Instead, it's because of the gospel that we are free, and it's because of the gospel that we stay free. It's all because of what Jesus did on our behalf that we are no longer slaves to the world. 
So the next logical question would be rescued from what? Freedom from what? Saved from what? I'll suggest some things here in a minute. But first I want to tell you, I grew up in a faith tradition, actually until I was 24 years old when God opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel, that emphasized strict obedience. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
If you were to summarize this epistle in one statement, one thesis statement, that would be it for this whole letter to these scattered churches across the region of Galatia. This, this verse would do the job. Everything Paul said up to this point and everything he will continue to say afterward is summed up in this one statement. By claiming that the new believers had to accept circumcision in order to become Christians, the false teachers known as the Judaizers were preaching a false gospel. Why was it a false gospel? Because they were requiring the new converts to do something, to perform, in order to secure their salvation. They were requiring something in addition to what Christ had done, adding to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They were teaching that salvation included something more than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What they were teaching was no different than the heavy burdens the Pharisees were wanting to put on the people that Jesus got after them for. Think of it this way. First part of the verse. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Everything about our lives as believers has to do with freedom. Like I said before, Jesus came to set the captives free. And this word freedom has to do with the state of being free, being at liberty. And then, for freedom, Christ has set you free. It was because of His finished work on the cross. Remember? He said, it is finished. His totally keeping the law. His totally measuring up to the standard of righteousness that God required. And because of His satisfying God's wrath and fury towards sin, that we were set free. Because of Him. Has nothing to do with us. And then, for freedom... Christ has set us free. It is something that is over and done with. Our being set free occurred at a particular point in the past, and the results continue into the future. Paul argued this was accomplished by Jesus alone. It is because of his single past action on our behalf that we have been set free. Because of his finished work, Paul said here, we are free. It is an absolute fact, and nothing can change it. Then, for freedom, Christ has set us free. That's you and me. Those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those who trust in the finished work of Christ. And finally, for freedom, Christ has set us free. The word free here tells us that we are free. We exist in a state of being free. It is a fact based on the finished work of Christ. Not something we work for, not something that we achieve. It's who we are. Not only does Paul make the argument that we are now free, that that's who we are because of what Jesus did on our behalf, but he exhorts these churches to stand firm. He says, therefore, as a result of what Jesus did on your behalf, and because you've been set free by Jesus, do not submit to a yoke of slavery. That's a command. The first part of the verse was a statement of fact. We've been set free by Jesus. This is the command. And it's a command that we can obey because of what Jesus has already done. That Paul outlined in the first part of the verse. What kind of slavery are we talking about? Well, we must understand that, that 
Paul expects us to actively engage in, that is, standing firm, resisting the temptation to give in to the demands of those who would make us slaves of performance. The idea um, conveyed by standing firm, the term standing firm, um, is one that pictures a soldier manning his post, never giving, giving way to the enemy as the enemy advances, as the enemy attacks, as the enemy closes in. It's closing ranks, shoulder to shoulder. In case of the Galatians, the enemy was the Judaizers. And in our day, it's those who come up with all sorts of conditions for acceptance by God. Paul exhorts them and us to resist the pressure that's brought to bear on us as believers to conform to man's rules. And he exhorts us to refuse to submit to the pressures that are brought to bear on us to give up, to go back to our old way of living. He was telling them, all of you, stand firm, resist, stick together, do not submit to the crazy ideas these Judaizers are preaching. What were the crazy ideas? Slavery to doing. Slavery to performance. Slavery to engaging in behavior they thought might might win or maintain favor with God. Finally, Paul told them not to take that yoke on themselves again. Again? Again. They had already been living under the burden before they were saved, that burden. Everyone does, believer and unbeliever, Jew and Gentile. There are many ways to be enslaved. Jews can be enslaved to the law. Um, Gentiles can be enslaved to the ways of the world, human tradition, the elementary principles of the world, the elemental spirits of the world. Paul talked about those things in Colossians and here in Galatians. And then in Acts 15, we see that at the Jerusalem Council, there was the same brand of Judaizers, who argued that Gentiles being saved needed to submit to circumcision. Acts 15.5 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they were believers, but they were also Pharisees, they rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses, order them to keep the law of Moses. Huh? They've been set free, and yet they're wanting to put that yoke on them. Peter, he got it. In verse 10, he says, it says here that Peter argued, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter knew. Paul knew. There's no way to keep the law. There's no way to fulfill the law. Nobody can do it. Only Jesus did it, and he did it on our behalf. And it's because he did it on our behalf that we've been set free. Does that make sense? Peter got it. He knew it was impossible to keep the law. Now, why did the Judaizers do this? There's always a reason behind false, God, false teaching, behind false doctrine. And Paul explains it later in Galatians in chapter 6. He shows us there that the Judaizers, quote, wanted to, want to make a good showing in the flesh. Read that performance who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They didn't want to have other people pointing fingers at them and talking about ignoring the law, so they wanted to put that on the Gentile believers. He said the Judaizers wanted to boast in their performance. They wanted to use these Gentile converts for their own reputation, for their own purposes. Verses 2 to 4. Look. He's getting their attention. 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul gets in their faces when he says, look, he's saying, listen to me. Each of you, individually, actively listen to me. If you believe circumcision is necessary for salvation, in addition to grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, then Christ will profit you nothing. You cannot be saved. Paul earlier argued in chapter 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those who believe are the sons of Abraham who have faith in Jesus Christ. What did he not say? He did not say, know then that it is those of faith and works who are the sons of Abraham. That would be what the Judaizers were teaching. Paul told the churches, if you buy into the need for circumcision, there's nothing gained, nothing accomplished, and there's no profit or benefit for you. And this is a statement of fact. It's a statement of one's condition before God. Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross is of no value to you if you believe, if you buy into this false teaching. Why? Because if we add to what Jesus did on our behalf, circumcision, food laws, spiritual discipline, serving in the church, or any other activity designed to curry favor with God, and get that, activity designed to curry favor with God, particularly for salvation, then it renders what Jesus did insufficient. It makes him an imperfect Savior. It's all or nothing when it comes to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. In Galatians 2 and 3, Paul tells us that no one is justified by keeping the law. He said, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you want to add circumcision to faith, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul charges them in verse 3, charges them in verse 3, telling them that if they did accept the necessity of circumcision, then they were absolutely obligated to keep the whole law in its entirety. And what would that look like? It'd be slavery. Slavery to the law, an indebtedness to the law that could never be repaid. It would mean not knowing if what we did was enough. It would mean taking on that yoke of slavery he talked about in verse 1 all over again. It would mean a complete end to the freedom that Jesus provided for us. That responsibility instead would rest with each of them individually. And keeping the law perfectly is impossible. What Jesus did effectively freed us from that burden. And brothers and sisters, we are not debtors. We are not slaves to the law. We are not living life here to try to repay God for what he did for us on our behalf in Jesus Christ. We are freed men and women. There's no more debt to pay. No more life of slavery. The balance in the account is zero. There's no need to perform to keep his love. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. Paul goes a step further. He tells them if they accept the necessity of circumcision, not only will the finished work of Jesus on the cross be of no value to them whatsoever, but they will be severed from Christ. 
Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Why? Because what they are putting their trust in what they do. They're putting their trust in their performance rather than in what Christ had already done on their behalf, what he had already accomplished. Paul is not saying, hear me, Paul is not saying that a believer, a true believer, can or will lose his or her salvation. No. He is saying that if you believe you must perform in addition to what Jesus has done, you cannot be saved because, again, adding to what Christ has done is the same as negating what he has done, rendering it null and void. Now, you may say, Tom, how can you say that? Well, I didn't. Paul did. He was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, if righteousness, justification, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Further, Hebrews 7 tells us that if righteousness were something attainable under the law, there would not have been a need for Jesus to come in the flesh and to experience his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. Wouldn't have been necessary. Not only that, but when we acknowledge that we can do nothing to earn God's favor, we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death his triumphant resurrection, and the resultant grace that he bestows upon us. What Jesus did on our behalf was completely sufficient to purchase our freedom. Nothing can be added. Avoid the slavery of performancism is what Paul's exhortation is all about. Do you sense I'm repeating myself? I am! On purpose, intentionally. We need to hear the gospel all the time in various ways. And we need to preach and declare the gospel to ourselves every single day. In talking about repetition, Tolian Chibijan wrote, quote, Once God saves us, he doesn't then move us beyond the gospel. Now, don't raise your hands, but I'll bet most everybody in here was brought up in their Christian faith The gospel's for the unbeliever. Then we move on to sanctification. Well, guess what? The gospel's for the unbeliever, yes, and for the believer. It's for all of us, and we need to hear it. Shavijan, once God saves us, he doesn't then move us beyond the gospel, but rather more deeply into the gospel. Christian growth is always growth into grace, not beyond it. All through the letter to the Galatian churches, Paul repeated his message over and over. God's grace, saving grace is free. God's sanctifying grace is free. God's amazing grace is free. We need to hear it over and over again because as Luther said, we forget it. We may walk out of here this morning, wow, God's grace is free. And tomorrow morning wake up and, oh, i got to do all these different things if I'm going to keep God's favor. That's just what we do. It's our default mode. John Piper said, quote, the key to freedom is to keep depending on grace. That means not depending upon ourselves and our performance. It means coming face to face with the gospel daily. Verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Do you see what I see? Faith, hope, and love. Those two verses. Here, in verse 5, Paul tells the churches he's eagerly awaiting for the hope, the absolute certainty of righteousness, the future righteousness that will be ours when God completes his work in us by his Spirit. Again, the hope Paul's talking about is not hope like we tend to think of it. Gee, I hope the Giants win again today. No. This word is expressing a confidence in an absolute certainty. This righteousness that we confidently await is a completely right relationship with God. It's ours now, and it will be ours in the future. So how do we wait? How do we await? In verse 6, we see that neither being circumcised nor not being circumcised counts for anything. Doing it or not doing it earns nothing. The same is true today. Neither pious religious performance to maintain God's favor nor a pious lack of performance to maintain God's favor counts for anything. Circumcision, performance, is not powerful. It's not valid. It is not strong or able when it comes to salvation through Jesus or sanctification by Jesus. In fact, the the only thing that matters, Paul says, is faith working through love, which happens as a direct result of the gospel making its way deep into our hearts to the core of our very being. That's why we must hear it over and over again. Paul makes it clear that the heart that is acceptable to God is the heart that trusts in God's grace, completely trusts in God's grace and nothing else. How is that recognized? Love. Love expressing itself through faith. Love is the very evidence of faith. Faith working through love is what counts, and it's what characterizes the life of the true believer. At the same time, it's vitally important to see that this love is not something we do because we must do in order to be accepted. No, it's something we are. Like I said before, it's what we are. Love characterizes the life of the true believer. Love that exists because of faith. Love that is real. The hope that we have and the love that results from our faith being worked out in our lives by God's Spirit. Faith and hope play themselves out for others in love that is demonstrated in our lives by what we do for others. Not because we must, not because we have to, but we can, because we cannot help but do so. So what does count? Paul says it's faith working through love. This love has to do with our giving of ourselves for the benefit of others. Javidjan talks about this love as being fleshed out by doing good works for our neighbor, for his benefit, not our own. This is our faith expressing itself through the loving acts as we, that we do for the benefit of other people. Now, I said earlier, freedom talked about, included at a minimum, freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from slavery to the law, freedom from performancism, and freedom from what other people think of us. The curse of the law was addressed by Dan in in Galatians 3. I'm going to briefly address the other three. Freedom from slavery to the law. Slavery to the law includes the absolute necessity of keeping all of the law to the exclusion of nothing. Paul was clear when he said that if we think there is something else to do, 
religious ritual, abstaining from certain foods, etc., then we are obligated to keep the law in its entirety. And no one can do that. And Paul said earlier, anyone that tries to do that is cursed. But the cross freed us from that obligation. Remember, Paul was astonished that the Galatians were deserting God and were turning to a different gospel as if there were such a thing. He told them that they had been bewitched and they were, that they were foolish. And foolish was a harsh term in Paul's day. He told them they were foolish if they thought there, they had, there was something that they had to add to the gospel. Something to add to what Jesus had already done on their behalf. Then there's freedom from slavery to performancism. <clears throat> Moralism is the belief that the gospel can be reduced um, to, to behavior modification, behavior improvement, self-salvation projects. Don't raise your hand. But how many have decided one day, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better wife. I'm going to be a better daddy. I'm going to be better at this. I'm going to be better at that. And we read a book to even learn how to do it. And we may succeed for two or three or four days. And then what do we do? Boom! We fall flat on our faces, don't we? We all do. What does that tell you? It doesn't work. Moralism doesn't work. Why? Because it avoids the cross as the means of justification and sanctification. Moralism is a means of shaming people into doing better. And all of that is not the gospel. Holding to a moralistic viewpoint leads to performanceism and legalism. Typically, those of us in church think of legalism as being man-made rules that are intended to govern our outward behavior. You know, don't drink, don't play cards, dress a certain way to go to church, don't go to movies, and things like that. There's the old saying, don't, don't drink, don't smoke, and don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Um, that's not the gospel. Legalism, performanceism, includes two other things that are clearly false teachings. Doing to earn one's salvation and doing to maintain one's salvation. We are to live by faith. How many places in the New Testament tell us, just the New Testament, tell us, live by faith. We are to live by faith. That means our sanctification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Period. There's nothing left for us to do to earn or to maintain God's favor. Likely as not, even though all of us were taught that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, all of us were also taught that we had to perform in order to maintain God's favor. We were taught that we had to have our quiet time, memorize Scripture, meditate on Scripture, read the Bible daily, maintain a spiritual journal, and on and on. All of these things, don't get me wrong, all of these things are good. They are beneficial in our walk with Jesus. But when they become mandatory in order to keep God's favor, when we engage in them for that purpose, we are being dependent upon performanceism. A little while ago, I mentioned that my life growing up was characterized by doing. Doing in order to receive something in return. Approval. What I mean by that is that doing something, anything, in order to receive something, including the approval, approval of others is slavery. It's understandable. We're relational people. 
We want to get along with people. We want people to get along with us. There's nothing wrong with that. We want people to like us, appreciate us, accept us. But it can become a yoke of slavery too. In his book, Who Will Deliver Us?, Paul Zoll wrote, we allow others to carry our value, and that's what we're talking about at this particular moment. We allow others to carry our value. Other people have an extraordinary hold over us. Their view of us, or what we think their view of us is, matters more than what we think of ourselves. Imputation, what Christ did on the cross on our behalf, turns this situation around, declaring that in the great transaction of the death of Christ, God reaffirms the priceless value he conferred on human beings in our creation. You know what? If we do anything for another, expecting something in return, if we allow what others think of us to rule us, or even what we think they think of us to rule us, we have taken that yoke of slavery back on our backs, our necks. And it is, by definition, the absence of freedom. It's an absolute contradiction to the gospel of grace. But Jesus, Paul says, has set us free. It's a done deal. It's a completed action. Why then would we want to take on law and performancism? Picking up, you've seen yokes put on oxen. Why would we want to put that thing on our necks? Why would we want to live like that? Jesus has completely and satisfactorily fulfilled the law on our behalf. His active work on our behalf has been imputed to us. It's been credited to us. And our sin has been placed upon him on the cross. And he accepted all of that voluntarily, accepting all the wrath and the fury of God against sin so that you and I could be free. Verse 7, Paul takes a right turn to make an important point. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who called you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Yikes. Paul commends them, and then he issues a challenge. He says, you were running well. And then he says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? It wasn't God. It wasn't the one who called you. Paul then refutes another unfounded allegation that had been made against him by those who had opposed him theologically, that he too was preaching circumcision to the Gentile converts. But he points out that because he's being persecuted in this area, the false allegation can't be true. Otherwise, he wouldn't be persecuted. Paul preached one message, the cross and the cross only. That message was offensive to unbelievers, but even more offensive to the Judaizers. He points out the Judaizers don't like the fact that Paul will not join them in preaching self-salvation projects, including circumcision. Paul tells them they must quit listening to the false teachers and get back to running the race well in the light of the gospel. 
And don't miss the fact that as Paul continued to write to these churches, he was angry. You see it at the beginning, you see it right here. He was fighting to preserve the truth of the gospel. He said that a couple times in either chapter 2 or chapter 3. That he was fighting to preserve the truth of the gospel against the enemy. He was angry the Judaizers were leading these new Gentile believers astray. So much so that he said, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So what do we get from this passion on the part of the Apostle Paul? What we get is what he was writing about mattered. It was important. One more thing. Of course, many people are concerned that when there's an emphasis on grace, an emphasis on the gospel, they become fearful that such an emphasis may lead to laziness, licentiousness, and antinomianism. And that's just a six-bit word coined by Luther to describe a doctrine that teaches that the moral law has no bearing on the life of the believer today. Freedom is not freedom to sin. Look what he says as he gets back to his argument where he left off in verse 6. I'll read verse 6 and then pick it up at verse 13 for continuity's sake. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed. By one another. He's saying, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. The freedom we enjoy as believers does not give us license to to live any way we want. It doesn't um, allow us to, to just do our own thing. Paul says, don't abuse that freedom that you have in Jesus. We're not free to determine our own standards of behavior. We're not freed to sin. Romans 6 is the best argument against a licentious lifestyle. Tim Keller wrote, Anyone who insists that the gospel encourages us to sin has simply not understood it yet, nor begun to feel its power. Instead, talking about the law, Paul, who was not an antinomian, says, through love, Serve one another. Fulfilling the commandment that Jesus gave. Okay, so which is it? Law or grace? It's both and. Paul makes it clear that our obedience to God, that is, our serving one another through love, thereby carrying out the love your neighbor as yourself command, is the result of grace. The gospel does not negate good works by the believer. No. Good works characterize the life of one whose, whose heart has truly been gripped by the gospel of grace. Instead of serving one another through love because we have to, we serve one another through love because we want to. Good works naturally flow. There's no need for intimidation or guilt-tripping the believer. When we really get the gospel of grace, nobody can hold us back from serving one another in love. Nobody can hold us back 
from telling other people about Jesus. Nobody can hold us back from serving inside or outside the church. Nobody can hold us back from giving to the Lord's work, living for God, obeying God. We do it because we want to. Not because we have to. It's because we've been set free. The yoke is off of us. The whole biting and devouring one another gradually becomes a thing of the past as God's Spirit continues to work in us. As we realize more and more, day by day, that it ain't about us. Will we ever be from free from sin in this life? No, of course not. That doesn't mean, though, that the Lord can't be doing His work of sanctification in our lives over the course of time, making us more and more like Jesus. Now, I know serving one another through love is not always something that's easy to do. But when we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of what Jesus accomplished for us, and reminding ourselves that we are free, we can't help but serve through love. The times I don't serve, serve my wife through love is because I haven't preached and declared the gospel to myself that day. Now, if you don't, you're here and you don't know what I'm talking about, all this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, ask somebody sitting next to you. Ask God to open your eyes to this great truth. You don't have to do anything but believe. And God enables us to believe. It's all of God. So what's this all mean for us? You and I must preach. We must declare the gospel of grace to ourselves every single day. It means that we can celebrate the fact that Jesus paid it all, and in so doing, He set us free. It means that we can celebrate the fact that because we are free, we are free to love God and love our neighbor without reservation. We are free to do good works because we can, not because we have to. It means that we can celebrate the fact that the backpack full of rocks, picture that in your mind's eye. The backpack full of rocks of performancism has been lifted off your back by Jesus. We can glory in the fact that our freedom in Christ is not dependent upon our earning it. And finally, we can glory in the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are so thankful for that truth, Lord. We are so thankful that there is no condemnation for those who belong to you. Your grace is amazing. It amazes us day in and day out. And no, we can't wrap our heads around this. We can't understand it. But we accept it by faith. Trusting, Lord, that you will do your work through your spirit in our lives to drive the truth of the gospel deeper, deeper into our hearts, into the core of our very being. And Lord, as we live out our lives by faith, we get to serve others through love. Thank you. Jesus. Amen.